We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. From KQED. From KQD in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. There are many different ways to describe what Peggy Ornstein's new book, Unraveling, is about. It's the story of how to make a sweater from scratch with all the writerly scenes and well-placed facts. And it's also a meditation on growing older, on what home is or can be, and on the interwoven pleasures and dangers of Northern California life. And it's an argument for the neglected importance of textiles as a driver of global history, cotton, colonialism, industrialization. Through it all, Ornstein follows the golden thread of what it is to be a woman today, what it was long ago, and what it might be for her daughter who's leaving home. We'll talk knitting and life with Peggy Ornstein after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Peggy Ornstein's here in Studio B with us this morning. She's a best-selling author, most recently of Girls and Sex and Boys and Sex. And now, naturally, she's turned her attention to another controversial topic, knitting. Her new book is Unraveling, What I Learned About Life While Shearing Sheep, Dying Wool, and Making the World's Ugliest Sweater. It's a memoir about that near-empty-nest feeling and so much more. Welcome, Peggy. Thanks for having me on, Alexis. So why don't you set us up in this book a little bit, and then we're going to have you read. Like, what's what's kind of going on in your life when you decide that you must go shear a sheep? Yeah, I mean, you made a joke about sex to, to knitting, and but but I feel like this book isn't really a departure for me because I think my beat has always been about examining the unexamined, and particularly in ordinary life, and particularly in women's lives. And so this, you know, this thing that I decided to do during the pandemic when everybody else was off, you know, making sourdough and doom scrolling, I thought, I know what I'll do. I'll go shear a sheep and process and spin uh, yarn and dye it with natural dyes and make it into a sweater because I don't have anything else to do. <laughs> um, and uh, and But it was really a vehicle for me to look at a lot of things like a little omnivore's dilemma. Why don't we look at our clothes the way we look at our food? Mm-hmm. A little bit of um, history of women's labor and why, and, you know, that, that, that needlework has always been a vehicle for dissent for women and why, you know, making those pussy hats. There was a reason that the first thing we did was knit after Trump was elected or, you know, weird lore like um, why the ancient Greeks didn't see blue. And then what was going on with me, which was I was a woman in late middle age in lockdown in a fire zone in Northern California with my child, you know, facing the empty nest um, also nego- navigating with my child, who's a person of color, uh, during the pandemic and the racial uprisings, and how you know parenting her through that, and uh, a mother who just died, and a father in dementia that I couldn't see. Um, so all of that is woven 
yes, woven um, throughout this story. It's funny. I mean, we're going to talk about the language uh, aspects of weaving and textile arts, which are just all throughout our language. So I apologize to everyone in advance for all of the following the thread, weaving these things together, <laughs> the warp and weft of, you know, there's all of these things. Are no, but all even part of texts, our right? Like yeah. we send texts. Texts are uh, have the same root as textile. And there's a reason why we call them threads when we spin out our texts and technology, even now, yeah. even in this advanced, you know, virtual world, we're still doing it with, with textiles. That's fascinating. Let's have you read a little bit from this book so people okay. can get a taste. Uh, this is from your uh, introduction. Okay. Um, I wasn't ready, not for any of it. There are libraries of books on, uh, for women on balancing work and motherhood. I wrote one myself. As if that is the entirety of our existence, this next phase, it's like dropping off a cliff, yet another cliff. We are not a culture, to say the least, that venerates older women. The sheer amount of age-forfending plastic surgery we engage in, not blaming, just noting, is testament to that. When someone wrote in the New York Times that while she was turning 60, she f still felt 20, I thought, yes, and no. Turning 60? I feel 60. Like, even though I can flex, still do a handstand in yoga class, that doesn't take away from the amount of sand at the bottom of my personal hourglass. Now suddenly in lockdown, I had a lot of time to ruminate about how I got here, what I might have done differently, how I might spend the precious productive years that remained how few they were starting to seem in number. Writing felt impossible, but that didn't matter. My work had evaporated anyway, leading to yet another source of panic. Just when I'd gotten my life together, it seemed to be unraveling. Hmm. That was Peggy Ornstein reading from her new book, Unraveling What I Learned About Life While Shearing Sheep, Dying Wool, and Making the World's Ugliest Sweater. Um, two things. It's not the world's ugliest sweater. It's on the back <laughs> of the book. <laughs> it's a perfectly nice sweater. Uh, and two, can you really do uh, headstand still? I can do a handstand, baby. Handstand. <sighs> Headstand's oh, easy peasy. I've, ne I've never been able to do that. I'm yeah. very impressed. Yeah. Um, Thank you. But, you know, I want to just kind of say something about the ugly sweater. Sure. I know it's not. Part of it was I got very attached to that title. But that was also about process. One of the really big takeaways for me in in on, um, in writing Unraveling was that uh, was learning to re-embrace process and the beginner's mind. And I think that for those of us particularly who do something sort of creative for a living, um, you know, it gets wrapped up in commerce and marketing and sales and all these other things. And so you the, the creativity and the joy in that erodes a little bit. And through the whole book, I'm sort of going, oh, I suck at this. Oh, I'm terrible. Oh, I can't do this. You know, oh, blah, blah, blah. And then there's a moment where I kind of go, oh, wait, this is the point. It's learning to love doing again and not being so attached to whether the result is ugly or pretty or fits or doesn't fit. Yeah, I love that. Um, I want you to talk a little bit about this sort of, you know, the global importance of fiber arts. I mean, there's a, an amazing example in the book where you're talking about how Viking sails yeah. might have been made, right? Because we think of, you know, global history, sometimes we'll, we'll think about, oh, these ships that went sailing. But we don't think about, well, where did they get the sails from? I know. We think about the guys with the, with the little weird hats, <laughs> right? Um, somebody had to spin everything, mm. everything that they did. It was years of labor to make one sail, years of woman labor. And women in ancient times, they spent inordinate, um, I mean, they spent all their time spinning. 
because somebody there were no machines. Um, you know, they just they just had to sit there and do it. And one of you know, I mean, I think as a journalist, you're always asking the five W's, right? Who, what, where, why, <laughs> and the H, how, which. Um, and and so for me, part of this was like looking, going like yarn, how. Right. How did this happen? You know, knitting. Who thought of that? You know, like all that kind of, and t- going to, I didn't know going, when I wrote this book, I thought, oh, I'm going to go do this kind of goofy thing. I did not realize you could tell the whole history of the world yeah. through text, like you can through, through salt or, or tea, you know, like the whole history of the world came into this. It was boggling to me and stunning. Yeah. Let's just line out the steps. I don't want to go quite deep into them yet, but let's line out the steps of if you were to start at, you know, we've got the sweater at the end. Right. Um, what are the things you have to do if you were to actually make this, you know, from scratch? you got to find a sheep. <laughs> <laughs> so raise a sheep. Okay. Step one. Find a sheep. <laughs> yeah. You have to learn how to shear the sheep, That, which is honestly the most physically grueling thing I have ever done in my life. It was so hard. I, I just really went into it so blithely thinking, yeah, I'm going to share it. You know, it was so hard. Calorie for calorie or, or minute for minute, it burns twice as many calories as marathon running. It is insanely difficult. Um, and that's just because you're like holding the animal with your knees. Kind yeah, of. You're like, and, you're wrestling the animal while also. And I want to be clear. It does not. Sheep need to be shorn. It does not hurt them any more than getting a haircut hurts you when it's done correctly and humanely. Um, and it, they, and so yeah, it's it's. I mean, but they're big and they don't particularly want to be there any more than my dog likes it when I you know trim her. Right. And they've got hooves and they kick and you're holding a hot whirring blade with no safety on it. Um, so there's a kind of terror. And but it's like a dance. You learn these steps. Um, and, and the guy who invented it is called the Nureyev of shearing, uh, the Bowen <laughs> method. Uh, and there's nine positions, and you, um, and you learn how to do them. And and, and yeah, it's 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 really hard. Physically demanding. It's physically demanding. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so we've got so we should shearing. Shearing. Then you have to. You've got a lot of gunky fleece that's full of you know poo and barnyard and stuff, and you got to yeah. wash that all. You've got to cart it, which you might maybe did when you were a kid at some like field trip. I have no. I I was trying to even imagine what carting looked like and had to Google it. Like, oh really? What, yeah. So like maybe describe. Well, so it. I'm from Minnesota, so we did that like as you know <laughs> on a field trip. So well, it's like two dog. Like if you brush your dog, and you know what those dog brushes look like. Yeah. You take a little bit of the fleece and you kind of puff it up. You lay it on there, and then you have to go back and forth. And it's in. It is. As as difficult as shearing was, it was fascinating, fun, carting, the most boring Dead thing. Dead boring. Dead yeah. boring. And so you have to do this little bit, and then you have to, um, the little, the, doing the one little bit took me 10 minutes, and you have to do 579 of those things called rollogs that I've heard to make a sweater. And so I was like, 10 minutes, I have to do 579 of these, this is going to take. <laughs> You're like, that's a lot of minutes Forever. of my life. But what I did, which was really, ended up being amazing, was... Um, was hanging out with my dad on Zoom uh, because it was or, or on on FaceTime. It was it was lockdown. Mm-hmm. He has de- had dementia. He's gone now, but he had dementia. Um, he was in his nineties. He was in a facility. Couldn't get in. He was in Minneapolis, uh, and it's hard. You know, I mean, this probably a lot of listeners have gone through this with parents. Going through this with your parent is hard, mm. and it's hard when you're far away. He can't really connect. He doesn't hear that well. He's out of it a lot of times. But that time when I was carting and it was so slow and so boring doing this ancient art, I could sit with him on this hypermodern technology mm-hmm. um, and just be there with him. 
Hmm. And sometimes he thought I was, you know, he'd go, Peg, can you hand me a glass of water? <laughs> I'd be like, no, Dad, I can't. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it was such... What was he during, doing during that time? He was watching baseball. <laughs> the <laughs> Twins, season in Minneapolis, the Twins were, pl- they were playing Twins games, right? And the Twins always won. And he um, thought it was because of something he was doing with his walker. And I was like, what is it, Dad? And he said, trade secret. You know, he's, and, and then we would sing because um, that part of the brain is different than the part that's affected by dementia. And he could remember songs. And so we would say, and mostly like. Like what you know, kind of song? You are my sunshine, uh-huh. my only sunshine. Oh, you man. make me happy when skies are gray. Uh-huh. You'll never know, dear, how much I love you. Please don't take my sunshine away. Oh, man. That was a big one. Just with your dad sitting there. Yeah, with my dad. I miss him. And I, and I will say that that time together, being able to slow down, that was one of the real gifts of doing this book and, and going through this process was that I have that time that we were together and just being and just being able to love him like that. And it's a real gift now that he's gone. Ah, it's beautiful. We're talking with writer Peggy Ornstein about her new memoir, Unraveling, What I Learned About Life While Shearing Sheep, Dying Wool, and Making the World's Ugliest Sweater. We would love to hear from you. We know there's some knitters out there in the audience, and we'd love to know, why do you knit? And have you ever thought about doing the full process like this, you know, from sheep to sweater? Have you ever have you ever done it? You can give us a call. Number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or KQED Forum, and the emails forum at kqed.org. Again, we would love to hear from you knitters. Maybe you even have knitting needles in your hands right now. We definitely want to hear from you. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We'll be back with more with Peggy Ornstein right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're here in the studio with Peggy Ornstein talking about her new memoir. It's kind of a memoir, right? It is a memoir. Yeah. Absolutely. New memoir, Unraveling What I Learned About Life While Shearing Sheep, Dying Wool, and Making the World's Ugliest Sweater. We're kind of walking through the steps that are required to kind of go from a sheep to, uh, to a sweater. And so far we've made it through um, the shearing 
um, mm -hmm. which, you know, where you were actually taking the wool off the sheep and kind of cleaning it, uh, carding it. And then we get to this incredible section that you have in this book, which is really about spinning and what spinning is. And I was hoping, you know, for those of us like myself who maybe don't know what how spinning works, <laughs> maybe you can describe. Like I'm, I'm familiar with the kind of fairy tale version yeah. of it, and I can see a spinning wheel in my head, but I have no idea what's actually happening. Yeah, during that process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and and I write a lot about the fairy tales. I love fairy tales anyway, but um, but fairy tales were really. Uh, invented or, or, or evolved from women spinning because women, they didn't have the internet, they didn't have TV, and they spun all the time. So they had to do something. So they would tell each other these stories, um, which used to be quite bawdy. They've gotten <laughs> less bawdy over time as they've become children and more gruesome, weirdly, huh. to teach children lessons. But anyway, spinning, you, you've got this, you've, you've carded this, the, the fleece and it's all nice and puffy. And then there's different ways of doing it, but you, you basically are... Are, are kind of pinching and pulling it out, and I can't describe this. And then, um, and and the and the wheel, and you're pedaling with your feet, and it's it's kind of a, a hand-eye foot huh. coordination thing. But you're kind of feeding this, and you're fiber feeding it fiber into, into this uh, kind of uh, hole, which is called the orifice um, in the wheel uh, uh, on the maiden, which is atop the mother of all. I mean, there's a lot of these. Met these kind of female metaphors, and the bobbin is swelling almost like a like a pregnant belly. Huh. And and one of the things that was really cool to me about uh, that I learned about spinning was how often spinning is in creation myths, and how often huh. spinning, um, like the Greeks, it's not exactly a creation myth, but when you're born, three sisters visit you. They spin. One spins the fiber, one measures it out, one cuts it off, and that's your life. And I just loved the idea that it was spinning and women who were the creators of life because what is really, you know, more magical and more divine than making something from nothing, whether you're making thread from fiber or, you know, bread from flour or a human from nowhere at all. Yeah. And you also found that, you know, it wasn't just in kind of European cultures. This no. was like all over the world. All over the same, world. This spinning. is a shared cultural experience. Yeah, yeah. Because everybody has to spin wherever spinning was. And spinning was everywhere. So the spider grandmother in the American Southwest was another one. There's a lot of spiders <laughs> um, and a lot of grandmothers and a lot of spinning. Because, <laughs> I mean, that how it, it, creating the world... Yeah, it's 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 this act of, of I'm kind of rubbing my fingers because it's like this tactile thing. Mm -hmm. And it just made a lot of sense to me that it was women in a lot of cultures yeah. um, and that it involved textiles. Because we come into this world, right, Alexis? When we come into this world, we're wrapped in cloth. When mm -hmm. we leave this world, we're wrapped in cloth. Mm -hmm. In between, we spend a lot of time wrapped in cloth. Yeah, yeah, it's such an interesting point. Let's go to our first call. Before we get too far away from shearing, we have Jessica in El Sobrante who wants to know a little bit more about shearing. Welcome, Jessica. Hi. Thanks for having me. This is very fascinating. Um, I am lucky enough to be a member milker of a local goat collective up here. And we are seven women who um, own and take care of and milk goats. And we also have two sheep. And right now we don't shear the sheep and I'm just, and they're very skittish. They're not as uh, approachable as the goats. Um, and I loved hearing about your experience with the sheep and I'm inspired and wondering 
what advice would you give to start from the very beginning, where to look to, to figure out how to approach these sheep and starting this whole process? Because this is amazing. Yeah. I mean, you have to, you, you have to kind of do a little research and learn. Um, I had met um, somebody through the um, store in Oakland, A Verb for Keeping Warm, um, which I write about, which is this wonderful place where they, um, you know, they, they, it's a dyeing studio, it's a spinning studio, it's a, a, a yarn studio. And um, through the um, owners of that store, I met um, somebody who could teach me how to shear sheep. There are some small flock shearers. There used to be a class in Mendocino, but I'm not sure in the early May, but I might not have come back after the pandemic. So I would also check at the Extension School of um, Humboldt uh, up in up in that, that way. Yeah. Jessica, it's kind of amazing, isn't it, that it's actually probably pretty hard <laughs> it is to hard. learn how to do this. Yeah, well, yeah. It, it, I mean, it's hard to learn how to do it well. It depends on what you're doing with it. But it it's also speaks to the fact that we, the wool industry has kind of disappeared mm-hmm. with the rise of synthetic fabric, fabrics um, and offshoring, both of which have, you know, have been kind of devastating. And the synthetic fabrics have just been a disaster for the environment. But wool used to be so common and so important um, to the American economy that there was a Miss Wool of America pageant on TV every year that Art Linkletter used to host and people like um, Frankie Avalon would come and perform on it and it, the big thing was the the modeling of the new wool fashions and you know there, it, it, it was just a great history to learn um, and I think that people get very interested in the fact that I like went off and learned how to do this because um, we've become so urbanized and we don't we don't do it anymore yeah Jessica, thanks so much for that call, and I just I love the idea of you on your goat collective um, with with your friends, uh, learning goats, learning sheep. Um, I well, I wanted to talk a little bit more about that sort of historical importance of some of these fiber arts. Um, in particular, you know, in the book you deal with you know cotton, which of course is we we somehow talk about cotton and the institution of slavery without actually normally connecting it into the history, like what's happening to that cotton, right? Why is it so yeah. important? Why are these areas in the South um, using enslaved people's labor? Why do they become so wildly rich? Maybe you can talk a little bit about that and even you know where that cotton ends up, which is in New England in the new factories of America. Yeah, I mean, the, in the American South and also India, um, the the colonialization of India by England. One of the things that was that I didn't know was that Gandhi used to spin every day for an hour at like four in the morning or something because it was it was really crucial to his idea of um, independence and self determination for Indians. He encouraged everybody to spin, and he wanted to put a spinning wheel in the center of the Indian flag and independence um, because it was so important to him. So looking at sort of the impact of I mean cotton, I wasn't quite as honestly as as um deep on but yeah. looking at the influence of that and the influence of the mills um and indu- the industrial revolution and the importance of spinning to industrial revolution and the way that that took women out of uh the home and put them into mills and that that and and that their um protest against the horrific treatment in the mills particularly in the United States they did these protests that became the foundation for both the American labor movement and the American feminist movement, um, and that it was no—I mean, I think that it, it was no accident that years later we have these young female voices 
um, Greta Thunberg or uh, X Gonzalez, who's now non-binary but who grew up in a female body, and um, and Malala, who because teenage girls have always been our political voice, our voice of conscience, our leaders. So that was an amazing thing. And then the other piece was not only cotton but color, which we haven't talked about. Mm-hmm. And and indigo um, was one of the places that I really looked at. You know, there, there was this sort of weird duality where on one hand, the person who figured out supposedly how to um, – Create indigo in the United States. Yeah, like the person period, who's credited with who's it credited, in the Carolinas. You. Yeah, um, was was uh, Eliza Pinkney who um, allegedly developed it as a teenager um, on uh, in, at her father's plantation and created um, the big cash crop. There was rice, there was indigo, there was cotton. Um, but in fact, her discovery, and she gets a lot of credit, and you know, teenage girl doing something sciencey. <laughs> uh, George Washington was a pallbearer at her funeral. But it depended entirely, depended entirely on enslaved labor. The West Africans who grew, who had grown indigo in West Africa, and knew how to do that, and knew how to process it, and did all the work. And so, you know, you got that kind of little bit of white feminism thing. But there's that sort of duality of both, you know, the the beauty and the blood um, that run through all of these. Um, textile arts. Yeah. Let's, um, before we get deeper into dying, which is a great, great part of this book, one of the really beautiful passages, let's uh, go to the phones for a little bit. Uh, Kimberly in San Francisco, welcome. Uh, Hi, thanks so much for having me. Um, I just wanted to say that during the pandemic, I started working at a yarn store in San Francisco and it it kind of like saved my life and branched out Mm into a whole new thing of like teaching knit and crochet classes to other people in the Bay area. And um, then I ended up volunteering teaching classes at my daughter's school. And it's just been the greatest, most rewarding thing. What do you, what do you find rewarding about it? Um, You can definitely, you know, make your own clothing. You can make gifts for people. You can make um, things out of sustainable textiles. And a lot of the things are one of a kind and really unique. Mm-hmm. Does something happen in your mind when you're doing these kind of fiber arts? Like what what happens in there? Um, sometimes it's like you're free forming it, and so you're just being extra creative. But sometimes I really enjoy following a pattern, and just um, the the challenge of figuring out the pattern and doing it successfully. And it's also nice to just do it and concentrate totally on knitting or crocheting and not be distracted by all of the other drama going on in the world. (laughs) Right. I mean, that's the big thing for me. And, and I, I love, I, it's been so beautiful with this book. I've heard so many wonderful stories about the role of craft in, um, in women's lives. Uh, but yeah, the, the, you know, I would say it was during, during the peak of lockdown, um, it was pretty much the only thing that calmed me down, and and I, and needlework is known to create a kind of serenity. It has a, the same as meditation. Mm-hmm. It has the same sort of um, qualities on on blood pressure and on mood and all. It's 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 a wonderful um, thing to do for just your well being. Yeah, and you know. Yeah, even at the store, we had people um, where their therapists had recommended that they take up knitting and crocheting <laughs> to give them peace of mind. And what did you find the community of knitters like, Kimberly? Like, what what was your experience of it? 
So for me, I grew up in a basically um, all-white community. I'm adopted from South Korea, and I, I never had any Asian friends. And so one of the greatest things in the Bay Area was the diversity and meeting so many different knitters from, like, all different ways of life. But um, that being said, I would say a lot of fiber arts is mostly um, older, uh, financially secure white women. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, I I find that to be also true that it it – it was and it wasn't. And, and on one hand, I make a point in a Times piece I wrote this weekend of when I'm writing about political knitting and how, in fact, knitting is fairly diverse, that I don't want to throw those those uh, the women who are the traditional knitters under the bus because there's nothing wrong with us. And we've done some amazing things politically. But I do in the book, I didn't really make a deal out of it. I didn't say it. But because I am that stereotypical knitter, um, I wanted everybody that I learned from to not be. So either they are younger or they are queer or they are non-binary or they are women. They're all women because I really did want that. But I didn't want them. I, did, I wanted to sort of make a subtle point throughout the book that there is a diversity of people who engage in fiber arts and there always have been. Yeah. Kimberly, thank you so much for, for that call. Just uh, really appreciate that experience. Let's talk a little bit about dying um, Vicky D-Y-E. in yeah yes yes yeah <laughs> that kind of yeah Vicky in San Jose I think came to some natural dying we'll go in through Vicky hey Vicky yeah um, so I have a group of friends that mostly play Celtic harp believe it or not and we got, all got into fiber arts I had already been a knitter but I found this book written back in the hippie days and I'm in my seventies now. And I thought, oh, this is so cool. It was Dye Plants of California. So wow. I, we would have these retreats in Pescadero at this old funky place. And we would go out and find these uh, plants. And I mean, I, I, every time we went hiking, I'd be sneaking a fungus or a mushroom <laughs> or something. And uh, you, you wouldn't believe what you can die with. You can die, there's a mushroom. Mm-hmm. I think it's, people call it dog, dog turd mushroom and it's got all kinds ah, of names, the classic dog turd mushroom a, it's the big puff yeah the big uh, reddish brown puff that makes fantastic browns and then the oxalis that is in mm. everybody's yard the weed is like clover with the bright yellow that makes a like a fantastic burnt sienna orange if you add ammonia oh so i learned all about dyeing and fixing and more denting so what happened was we would have these retreats, play harp for a while, then go out and uh, put a, a dot. We'd die in the kitchen, and then we'd have all of this fiber, which could be silk, it could be alpaca, it could be, you know, it was some really wonderful fibers. We'd put it all out on the deck and take pictures, and I have pictures of this rainbow pile. But what happened, of course, was we all went our separate ways eventually. One person got into weaving to the extent that she she had an electronic loom, which kind of defeats the purpose. And then the rest of us end up with what we call a stash. And I'm sure you're familiar with that, where you end up with so much yarn, so many fleeces, so much roving. You've got two spinning wheels. You've got a spindle. <laughs> you've got knitting. And you realize, I'm, I'm not going to live forever. So then you have to deal with getting rid of it, deciding who, what am I going to do with all this? And I sold some on Etsy, but it's like, I, to me, it's kind of a, a, like an arc through your life. Yeah. You know? yeah. And I music is number one. Now I've gone back to cello, which yeah. is my first instrument. So, Thank you. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. It's still there. Yeah. But, you know, so I think this creativity is, is really, uh, 
key to it. That yeah. is such a good point. You know, the, the creativity piece, and, and I'll get back to Diane in a second, but I, it, partway through the book I, I say, I talk about this Linda Berry cartoon that I used to have in my office um, where she is drawing sort of, you know, she talks about herself as a kid drawing in this like freeform way. Um, and then she says, at some point you you ask these, um, you, you learn the two questions, is this good or does this suck? Mm. And those are the questions of death to creativity. Um, and so to try to start asking yourself when you're doing this, and this is what I learned while this was, you know, one of the great takeaways for this for me was learning to ask different kinds of questions, which were about like, how did that work? What might I do differently this time? Um, what would be fun next time? And to try to keep your eye on, to have something in your life where you try to keep your eye on process over product. Yeah. Vicki, uh, thank you so much. Please invite me to your next gathering. Um, <laughs> I'll make the tea. I got it. Um, we're talking with writer Peggy Ornstein about her new memoir, Unraveling What I Learned About Life While Shearing Sheep, Dying Wool, and making the world's ugliest sweater. I am really enjoying your phone calls, Peggy. I hope you're enjoying these yeah, phone calls no, as well. It's such great. They're such great stories. They're great stories. And they're the so color fun. thing was so cool, Alexis. I mean, I got really into, as you mentioned, got really into color. Yes. It and was very fun. We are going to talk about that right after the break because it really is very exciting. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. Why do you knit? I know we've got uh, some listeners, uh, some men who are saying, hey, Men can knit men and knit. are into it. So if you're a guy who knits, um, give us a call. If you're a non-binary person who knits, give us a call. Number is 866-733-6786. We're hearing about these natural dyes. Do you like dyeing with natural things and what have you used? You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or KQED Forum. The email is forum at kqed.org. A uh, couple of comments. Sue writes, my mom taught me to knit at age six because I was bored and bugging her. That was 67 years ago. We have way too many sweaters at our house, so now I knit for charity. I do prosthetic breasts for women who've had mastectomies and send them to knittedknockers.org. I knit caps for chemo patients who have lost their hair and give them to Knitters by the Bay or directly to Stanford Hospital. Thanks for sharing that, Sue. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We'll be back with more from Peggy Ornstein right after the break. I heard somebody whisper, please adore me. And when I look, the moon had turned to gold. Blue moon. Now I'm no longer Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're here with best-selling writer Peggy Ornstein talking about her new memoir, Unraveling, What I Learned About Life While Shearing Sheep, Dying Wool, and Making the World's Ugliest Sweater. We were, for the break, talking a little bit about this dying process and natural dyes. And it is extremely fascinating how, let's just talk about how you would dye something blue. Oh, well, blue is like its own thing. It's different than everything else and that was why it became it, it became its own chapter hmm. um because, and why is it different uh because it doesn't it, it it does it sits you have to do this whole chemical thing which i can't really explain because if i do i get this very powerful urge to check my text messages <laughs> um i just think of it as magic but you have to sort of create a vat and you have to dip um, it's really complicated, and you have to dip the um, fabric in, and it kind of builds up as opposed to soaking in, which is why your jeans, if you get really dark oh, jeans, rub they off. rub off on you. Yeah. Because it's, and why they fade. And it's one of the things, actually, that I thought about environmentally is that you know people throw their clothes away all the time when they fade or when they rip or you know these sorts of things, but not our jeans. And if we could think about our other clothes more the way that we think about our jeans in this way that individualizes them and makes them sort of part of us, um, I think we would have a different relationship with our clothes and with the environmental impact of our clothes. What did you like about dyeing, like the actual process of it? One was just thinking about, since I was using natural dyes and and trying to, as much as possible, for a while anyway, get them from my yard or from my neighborhood, it just made everything kind of psychedelic. Like Mm. I just started, everything was just like pulsating at me. You know, I'd look at the leaves on my pear tree and think, what color would they make? Or, (laughs) you know, the fig tree. And you could sort of make things that grounded you in your sense of place and home. And then color itself, like the idea that... One of the things that emerged for me in my one of my rabbit holes of research was color is a cultural construct. Mm. Whoa. Mm-hmm. You know, like the ancient Greeks. The wine dark sea. The wine dark sea, the bronze sky. Yeah. They didn't, blue, irrelevant to them. Didn't see it. Didn't mm. have it. Wasn't a color. And you just think, how could they not see blue? But then I think, well, other cultures see, don't care about the prism. They see things as damp or dry, shiny or, f- or rough. I don't know what that means. Or I do, but I don't care when mm-hmm. I look at something. It's red. I don't care that the light above my microphone is shiny. It's red. Hmm. So interesting. Um, Stephen wants to say, uh, one of our listeners, you've made several references to women and uh, knitting. I took up knitting several years ago and learned that knitting was started by fishermen to make their nets and that during the Middle Ages, only men were allowed to knit. Was that any of that information come up for you in the research? Yeah, but it's not quite true that that knitting was developed by fishermen, but but they did do, but string, I mean, that's one of the things about string that's amazing, that um, Elizabeth Whalen Barber, who writes about um, ancient work, talks about the string revolution, that when we figured out as humans how to twirl stuff and make string, it was as important as fire, because it let us bind things, it let us make nets, it let us do all these carry, you know, things that we couldn't do before, trap. Um, but yeah, men knit, and I talk in the book a little bit about the um, political knitting men did. There's a group of men in Chile um, that knit in public as an act of um, gender nonconformity, and they wear sort of classic men's suits, and then they knit with pink yarn um, as a way to critique gender, and I loved that. But yeah, men, of course, have always... Also knit, um, but I was kind of interested in women. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Barbara writes in to say, just think about how you can take a couple of sticks or the little bend on the crochet hook 
and make any two- or three-dimensional object, like a scarf, a tote bag, even a shelter to sleep under, or just take a break from the rain or sun. That's it's amazing. crazy. I know. That was that was sort of what got me going, Barbara. You're absolutely right. You're like, who thought of this and how? <laughs> and, you know, and, and by the way, there's somebody who does uh, knitting as, thinks about knitting as code. Mm-hmm. And knits and pearls as the ones and zeros of code, and they have used that to make all to think about all kinds of three dimensional objects and um, changing ways that we think about like prosthetic limbs and all. You know, there's some really interesting work that's being done um, that uh, by people who women particularly uh, who knit and have then gone into coding and figured out how to use that to change yeah. all kinds of stuff. Let's bring in uh, Thea in Oakland. Welcome. Thank you. I am so excited to hear this program. I have been knitting since I was eight, and now I'm 53. And um, and about 20 years ago, I started teaching knitting. Um, uh, actually, it's, I you know during the big dot com bust and sort of and also 9/11. You know, everyone is kind of reevaluating everything, and 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 there was that draw towards knitting for the comfort. And I always say to my students that it's a lot cheaper than um, both therapy plus a really well-made sweater. If you can knit and you can make it yourself, it's cheaper than those two things together. It's, it's, it's a joke, but there's, there's definitely the, the therapeutic element. But anyway, I'm I'm excited to hear you speak at Bookshop West Portal tomorrow night, which oh, is where I've been. Thank you. Speaking. Thanks for explaining so, that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was speaking at Bookshop West Portal tonight. Did who? How old were you? Who taught you to knit when you were eight? Well, I tried to learn from my mom, and somehow the communication didn't quite work Uh well. So I wound up (laughs) learning from my third grade friend's grandmother. Oh, Oh, that's so good. Yeah, years later, I wound up taking doing a a retreat, um, sort of couture knitting techniques with my mom and. And then she was having difficulty sort of uh, understanding it from the teacher, but then I would turn around and teach her, and that's how I started teaching. But I just wanted to say that knitting is just such a great portal for so many things. You know, like it was a lifeline to me during the pandemic to have a social, the Uh the social, the knitting social that I actually have tonight at the bookshop (laughs) Uh has went virtual, you know, and it was for me a lifeline. And for a lot of people, as we had, you know, loved ones get sick, you know, I mean, not necessarily some from COVID or, you know, some from uh, everything else, you know, and so I just, that's great. Yeah, it's, there, it's rich. there is a whole theme in the book about learning from our moms. I started abbreviating it after a while. S L H F M. She learned from her mom. I learned from my mom. And when I was knitting during lockdown, I would talk to my mom all day, every day, although she was dead. And I was trying to sort of reckon with my relationship with her, um, which could be fraught. But knitting was something that always brought us together. And I think it worked that way for a lot of um mothers and daughters. And then I say later that I didn't teach my daughter to knit because I actually knit in a weird way. Um, and I wanted her to look, learn in a, in a more, um, a better, faster way and talk, uh, use that as kind of a metaphor to talk about what we do learn from our moms, mm. what we don't learn from, and what we learn from our moms that we want to pass on and what we learn from our moms that we don't want to pass on <laughs> to our yeah. daughters. Nancy writes in to say, I love this conversation. I followed a voice that said, learn to sew, while at the same time taking a class in memoir writing. 
Both of my grandmothers sewed, and one professionally as a dressmaker. I feel so connected to them, even though I only knew one of them. I know them better through this craft. The attention to detail and precision and creativity informs me as to who they needed to be in order to do this well. Oh, that's so, I mean, I really, I, I can't even express how many beautiful stories I've been hearing since publishing Unraveling. And just, I mean, from from men and women and other people as well, and, and just these memories, these beautiful memories of mothers and of grandmothers mm-hmm. and and also the political knitting, the, the knitting that people have done for charity or that somebody just sent me something that they the, in, at the New York legislature, they just unfurled a banner that is was enormous that had uh, Lady Liberty, but her torch is a uterus mm-hmm. and it was for reproductive rights. I mean, the, the activism around fiber arts, too, has just been it's it's just inspiring. It just yeah. lifts my heart. Uh, another beautiful family story before we go to Sandeep in Los Altos. Margot writes, my aunt taught me to knit 25 years ago. She was dying of cancer. And that connection remains for me to this day. That familial connection of passing on something creative is so meaningful to me. Also, the sweaters that I have been knitting and gifting to my adult daughters, the act of knitting itself is very meaningful. You need to start again and be comfortable with pulling out rows and rows of stitches. There's a patience that's required. Uh, Sandeep in Los Altos, welcome. Yeah, hi. Can you hear me? Yeah, sure can. Go ahead. Yeah, I wanted to share a story uh, about my mother. She's 93 now. And uh, when she retired about 10, 15 years ago, uh, she's been a knitter all her life, but mostly for making sweaters and things. But uh, I think the whole family got tired of her sweaters because she had made some. And uh, in the in the last few years, she's also had dementia and loss of hearing and lost my father, who was her husband, uh, about three years ago. So put all of that together and she's lonely and she can't really watch TV because she can't hear too well. She can't read because she Mm. says, I can't follow the story. Mm. And knitting has become her savior. Mm. She knits nonstop, like literally eight hours a day. Mm. And what she is, since she's not making sweaters for anyone, she, we found her some nonprofits um, uh, where she knits caps for cancer patients because they need soft woolen caps after mm-hmm. chemo. And she also knits for, uh, I think it's called Knit America or something, mm-hmm. where she makes these seven or eight inch by eight inch uh, pieces and sends it to them and they weave it into or stitch it into a blanket for uh, the homeless and other, uh, other, uh, you know, uh, other benefits. And it's been just so therapeutic for her uh, because that is literally the only thing that she enjoys doing. And the greatest stress it creates for me is to make sure that she has enough enough yarn. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because, because she knits so fast uh, she's knitting six, seven hours a day. Yeah. Yeah. And if she is out of yarn, she gets seriously stressed. And I told her, why don't you take a break for a day? <laughs> and she said, no. If I take a break for a day, my mind starts mm. wandering oh. into, you know, she starts getting yeah. depressed. Yeah, and so yeah, it's yeah. so therapeutic. And oh. she feels such a sense of accomplishment because yeah. she's doing something 
for nonprofits. I just wanted to share that. Yeah, Thank Sandeep, you. that's a great. That's, am- uh, that's amazing. Yeah, Thank that's you, a great Sandeep. story. Kind of connection to, you know, her body and her yeah. life and and what it is to and brings in a whole lot. Of, I mean, for one thing, yes, it is true that knitting staves off dementia. That is one of the things that they found about it. But also the that that whole piece of what we do with our craft. And I've been I'm I'm a terrible Instagrammer, but I've just been lately trying to put up things that people make that they've been projects they've been doing for politically or mm-hmm. or for charity mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. show kind of the breadth and the meaning of all that we do with knitting. Yeah. Let's uh let's go to Jennifer in Petaluma. Welcome Jennifer. Hi. Um thanks for taking my call. I am at the Petaluma Dobie State Historic Park and we usually hold a sheep shearing and the pandemic shut that down, and this year we're actually trying to get cheap and do our event again. And it um, brings together a very interesting group of people that just want to see the sheep sheared, but we also get uh, weavers and spinners and knitters, we hope. It's been really fun when we've gotten a really nice mix of people. <laughs> you and need to get together with the earlier callers. Yeah, that's right. Looking for the shearer. <laughs> yeah, I hope that's she's I, still listening. Maybe yeah. you, can, you can get together. Yeah, so hopefully... I mean, I, I'm I, I'm hoping to make that connection. Yeah, <laughs> I'm yeah. at the Pedal and Adobe call, me. Um, but uh, it, part of what I've seen with the event is that the people that are that first just get into seeing the process of where it all starts are the kids, mm-hmm. really young kids. Parent, it's it's the parents that bring their kids in strollers, and they're just like, this is where your clothing starts. Yeah, yeah, and that connection. And um, we were fortunate to have a volunteer that. Um, came in and taught us some historic dyeing techniques that we actually got to do here in the park. And, like, this ah, is a so co- cool. cochineal. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, so cochineal yeah. That was one of the things that I write about, um, the, the, the rise of red and how red was really the one of the bases of the Spanish Empire when they went off, you know, marauding and co- colonizing places. They found that these bugs in Central America, the, the, the females, I don't know how they, told they, they could tell they were females, but they, they squooshed them and you'd get this one drop of durable carmine pure red. And it took hundreds of thousands of them to make a pound of cloth, which, you know, so they were worth their weight in gold, more than their weight in gold. And they kept secret for hundreds of years that this was bugs. Nobody knew what these things, what it was. And they brought them back and they made, you know, it, it, it was a fortune. It's how they funded um, what they did. It was incredible. And then, the, you know, it, it like rises and falls. Red comes up, then blue comes up, and the merchants of red are trying to stop the merchants of blue. So they... they bribe the stained glass makers to try to make them make hellfire blue so people associate that with hell and won't wear blue and it doesn't work and like there's these crazy stories and then the whole thing collapses in a minute with the invention of chemical dye by this college student who's like the Steve Jobs of his generation and just kind of goes oops um, and finds this pink stuff in a test tube that doesn't come out of the cloth and within a couple of decades natural dye collapses and we lose it, and it's gone. Most of it is gone. And that's just because it's easier to make from fossil fuels. It's easier to make, and it has tremendous, tremendous environmental impact, um, the, the color of our clothes. That's so interesting. Let's uh, take one last call. I'm sorry, the phone lines, the knitters lighting up the phone lines, Peggy. Um, I love that. I love it, too. Linda right in to San Francisco. Welcome. Hi. Um, I just wanted to say I was listening earlier about um, when you were talking about learning knitting from your mother and you know i just 
wanted to add my story, which is that my mother is not a knitter, and I've always loved textile arts and things like that. And the way that I learned to knit was learning from friends and going online because there's so mm. many great mm. resources online. Are you a Ravelry person? Wonderful. I am a Ravelry Everybody's person. Everybody's a Ravelry person, <laughs> Alexis. You can't not be yeah. a Ravelry person. Yeah, there's it's just amazing how much you can learn. There's great, you know, YouTube tor- YouTube tutorials. So you know, if you, because I I was trying to re- learn from books, but I it was just impossible for me. And and then until somebody sat down, like my boyfriend's sister showed me how to do the knit stitch, mm-hmm. and then everything else I've learned from like looking online. That's yeah, I kind of joke that there's much. infinite yeah. infinite YouTube. Um, yeah. Yeah, thank you Linda. It's it's great. Yeah. And yeah. and you know the learning from friends is important. Well, I I talk about I'm probably the last uh, per, you know gener- the last class to I was the last class to take home ec, <laughs> to have girls home ec <laughs> um before Title IX kicked in and um my this the girl was sitting next to me, and we had to knit scarves, and hers kept coming out like a rhombus. It just was not going to work. She was going to flunk home ec. And so I was like, here, give it to me. And I knit her scarf for her, and that is my best friend. And we have been best friends for 40 years. Oh, I love that. Um, I have to 50. read you these last two comments, which are both so amazing. Uh, Victoria writes, I'm an agricultural worker in Marin County, and I spin and knit. My mother-in-law taught me the art form and gave me a spinning wheel, which she refurbished herself. She was a child in post-World War II Germany. She and her friends would gather the wool that caught in fences to bring home and spin into yarn for garments. As a financially strapped millennial, I'm grateful for this survival skill that has been passed down to me. And then check this one out. Jane writes... As a lifelong knitter and spinner of 30 years, I've noticed a positive effect on my well-being. To explore this further, I pasted electrodes onto my scalp and read the spectrogram while knitting and later spinning. These activities increase the alpha waves of my brain activity. It's the beginning phase of meditation and a very relaxed but attentive state. The bilateral aspect of knitting has an effect of being able to process issues with both sides of the brain. Knit on. Don't you Why want to meet Why didn't I Jan? think of doing that? Why <laughs> I know. Even, you know I the know. wool gathering. Wool ga- like, we yeah. wool gather, right? You're gathering wool. Yeah. That, that off of the fences and stuff, that was initially how people yeah. got My wool. God. Jane, can you send me an email? I, I want to hear more about this. It's I a madrigal at kqd.org. We can put you in touch with Peggy. I think that is just such a great story. We have been joined in the studio here by Peggy Ornstein talking about her new memoir, Unraveling What I Learned About Life While Shearing Sheep, Dying Wool, and Making the World's ugliest sweater. Thank you so much for coming. This was the most fun. Thank you. I love hearing these stories. She'll be at Bookshop West Portal tomorrow and at Book Passage Corte Madera on Saturday. This is Joni Mitchell. This is also Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the Internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.